First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4 tonight. I'll preach from verses 1 through to 6. First John chapter 4. Let me read those verses in your hearing. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus Christ, sorry, is come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God does not hear us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen. But before we come to the preaching of the word tonight, let me lead us once more in prayer and ask God's help in preaching. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we come now before your word and both preacher and uh, congregant alike, looking to the Holy Spirit to give us illumination, to give us conviction of the weightiness of God's truth. Speak to us, Lord, um, as your word is living. We pray that we would hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the word tonight. So please, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me in preaching your word to be faithful to God's truth. Uh, to be faithful to what God has said and to point your people to the Lord Jesus. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, come to these um, first few verses of the, the new chapter, uh, chapter 4 of, of John. And um, tonight, John is going to be addressing uh, in more detail, if you want, a topic that actually... Um, uh, that is very prevalent in, in, in parts of his, of his epistle anyway. This is, but, but maybe this is the most condensed uh, portion of, of uh, John's, what you'd call pneumatology or his, his, his study, his, his, his theology of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it's more than just a theology. Uh, it's, uh, it's very, very practical for John. But John speaks then here, um, he's going to speak a bit about the doctrine of the spirit and and so the question is is why here and and how does that tie into the what we understand already to have been the purpose of the book of of first john and in particular the, the answer to that would be the relationship that john makes between uh, the spirit and truth and thus so the, the work of the holy spirit and the truth and and so um then the the work of the spirit or the absence, if you like, of the spirit and falsehood. And of course, that is a necessary topic for John to broach because this is a congregation he's writing to who, has, who have had to face up to um, some of them of their members believing in false doctrine. They've experienced the devastation that false teaching can cause. The fact that false teaching is devastating 
to the spiritual life, devastating to genuine faith. It's one of those things, actually, we were speaking about perseverance in our morning meetings. It's one of those things that, that the Christian has to face as he as he or she comes to the awareness that we have to persevere in the faith, one of the reasons why we're persevering, or those, one, of the, one of the places, areas where we're getting attacked from is the area of teaching and doctrine. Uh, false teaching is one thing that will take people away from uh, the faith. John is going to say as much tonight. Uh, and so in one sense, God's plan for perseverance, and there's a sermon like that actually in, 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 one of, in the series I have, God's plan for our perseverance is for us to, um, to know the truth and to hold fast to the truth. Um, now, as I say, John is writing to this congregation then who has been besieged by false teaching, and you know that in the, and I preached this last, last Lord's Day, jo- John has reiterated the substance of something of the substance anyhow of apostolic doctrine right and um john is writing to these this congregate this congregation or perhaps these congregations wanting to convince them of the authority the authentic authenticity of of apostolic teaching and doctrine and the in fact the necessity of it there's no genuine christianity apart from it and I'm wanting to remind them that there's no, there's no need to go for, there's no better alternative. Don't envy the alternative, whatever it is, that these folks are offering to you. We can only, at points, conjecture what this alternative was. But John gives us hints. You know, you, you might say, for example, when we've read such an elaborate chapter, and we'll come to that, and again, in, later on in First John chapter 4, there's another elaborate exposition, uh, an elaborate development of how Christians should live in love, we might say that those those aspects, those 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 aspects of of, of John, First John, tell us that maybe one thing these false teachers were were representing was a kind of a Christianity that didn't have to care about the social element or, or its social duties, its duty to love other people. They were offering a, they were offering a kind of religious religious a kind of expression of the christian faith where you could say you were a christian but you didn't have to worry about loving others maybe because they were so consumed in their uh, kind of in their boastfulness about their own spirituality they didn't live in love and john says this is not apostolic this is not a apostolic faith and if that is how you live if that is how you live you can be sure that you're not Christians. Um, now, John is going to move briefly uh, here into, well, not briefly, he's actually developing what we, read, what we saw in, in, in those closing verses of First John chapter 3. He's going, but he, he's going to further then develop the idea of, uh, and briefly in the initial aspect, of, initial verses of chapter 4, those six verses, he's going to develop the, again, this doctrinal element this doctrinal aspect of what authentic faith is, and, and basically say, listen, um, genuine faith is about what you believe doctrinally. So I've, I've, I've said this to you all, 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 all through the series, how, how, how John has this, if you want, uh, this tri-perspective view of what faith is, and faith is, for John, a, a, about what you believe doctrinally, about how you live ethically, 
um, and about how you act socially, whether you love people. So it's pistic, which is about what you believe. Um, it's agapic, which is about um, uh, how you how you love, how you how you uh, ex express love, right? Uh, and it's also uh, in the realm of how you uh, act and how you live, how you obey the commandments. And um, as I was saying last Lord's Day, then that John basically reminded these believers that it, it, genuine Christianity looks like obeying God's commandments, which are, and what's God's command? Believe on the Son, Jesus Christ, and love your neighbor. The two, those are two things on which all the commandments hang. Believing, love the Lord your God is the first. But what does that mean? It's to believe on Jesus Christ. This is God's love, that he sent his son into the world to die for our sins. So what does it mean to obey God's commandment? Believe that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Believe Jesus. And love your neighbor. Love others. You obey that commandment. And John, in contrasting his own authentic faith, contrasting apostolic faith with the false alternative, says, if we do that, we can have confidence that we have a relationship with God. This is what these other false alternatives can't give you. They can't give you confidence before God. They can't give you confidence that this God is my God. They can't give you confidence that God is my father, right? Martin Luther's, the, the, the great reformer. Luther's story is, is, uh, is testimony to that. Luther was a fastidious monk who did his best to keep as many commandments as he could, he, to, to try and make himself as righteous as he could before God. Um, and to do, to, he was, he was, particular, right, about trying to obey every single commandment, but he had no peace with God, no confidence before God, always feeling guilty until Luther realized that he wasn't obeying the first great commandment, which was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was believing on the Lord Jesus Christ plus other things, which is not the Lord Jesus Christ at all. When he got that sense of that, then Luther had confidence. It, it was the sense of confidence that a man like Martin Luther experienced. Now, the confidence I have to come to God because I'm no longer depending on self, but I'm depending on Christ that basically spurred on the Re Reformation. And, and John says, when there is genuine Christianity, we have confidence. That's what Christianity gives. That's what every other religion doesn't give. It's confidence before, to come to God. Other religions might force ethical change. They might constrain that. Um, Muslims are often, very often, at least externally, might be the most moralistic type of people you ever meet, right? Abstaining from alcohol, even though that's perhaps not a moral issue, but anyhow, doing that and abstaining from that food and staining from sexual immorality and all these kind of things. 
And yet, the, the, the Muslim has no confidence before God. Every day having to take a wash, a bath, before he can come to God in prayer. Um, to God in prayer. Uh, not sure what will happen on judgment day. Hoping his goods outweigh, his good deeds outweigh the bad. No confidence. And the Christian's confidence is expressed, John says, in our communion, is what I said last week. Our communion, and two things. Communion, first of all, the liberty to pray. The freedom we have in prayer. Can I ask God for anything? He'll give it to me, because he's my father. I ask him for all those things. According to his will, I ask him for those things as his child. He gives it to me. That, that is, the Christian in prayer might be, will be, show evidence of the genuineness of faith in Christ, the way the Christian is in prayer. Other forms of prayer in other religions, now so many religions have prayer, but the freedom we have is nothing like what these folks know of, the liberty we have in prayer. You know, it'd be like contrasting Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Whose God will answer by fire? Prophets of Baal are men self-flagellation and cutting and beating and all that stuff. Elijah's God. Elijah has freedom. Right? He can just speak to his God because his God is a God who answers by fire. We have that kind of liberty in prayer because we have confidence. And the second mark of our communion is, is the Holy Spirit. Right? In verse 24, we know that we are in Christ. Christ is in us because the Spirit is given to us. And so John says, the mark of the authenticity of our faith, of, of, the, of the genuineness of our message, is that you, we have the Holy Spirit. These guys don't have the Holy Spirit. But we have the Holy Spirit. These false teachers, they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And he convinces us that we're God's children. Now, John perhaps has to respond to a possible objection to that. Which is, okay, but you say, John, that the authenticity of our faith and the authenticity of this apostolic message where Christ is proclaimed faithfully can be proven by this internal witness of the Spirit. Isn't that somewhat entirely subjective? Doesn't it make what is true? Doesn't, doesn't it make it belong to the realm of pure Subjectivity, don't isn't it now just about an internal feeling? And if that's the case, what if these false teachers are saying we have the spirit too? And now here you are, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, claiming that your own teaching of the faith, that your own gospel is what is true, and that ultimately the spirit will bear witness with us that what you say is true. But these folks tell us that the Spirit is bearing witness with them that what they're saying is true. So how do we know? Should we not just welcome in everyone who says... So these false teachers, they say we have the Spirit. Should we not just welcome them? And John then goes into this to, 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 to um, help this church out to protect them from that kind of what could be dangerous thinking... John goes on to say a few things about what it means for the Spirit to be bearing witness in the church. 
Yes, the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit. Yes, as John will conclude, I absolutely believe that the most fundamental witness to the truth that you have, I absolutely believe that the surest ground of assurance that we're in the faith is the work of the Spirit internally in the lives of God's people and generally in the corporate life of the church. The fact that the Spirit is there bearing witness is the most important, the one most important uh, grounds for having confidence in the truth. But, John is going to say, it doesn't mean that there are no false spirits. It doesn't mean that there are no lying spirits. And so, I need to outline for you what it means to truly have the spirit. I need to outline for you what it means that the spirit is bearing witness among you. What do do I mean when I say it's the spirit that lets you know that your faith is authentic. It's the spirit that lets you know that you are in Christ. And I'm going to show us three things tonight then from that. One that John calls, firstly, that John then calls these Christians to test the spirit. As we confess the necessity, we must confess the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We must say that Christianity is ultimately about the Spirit illuminating, the Spirit convincing us. It's God's Holy Spirit who ultimately lets us know that we have the truth. Um, it's, not the work, it's not ultimately the work of apologists. It's not ultimately the work of good arguments. It's not ultimately experiences that we have. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's the spirit bearing witness in a unique way. But what does that look like, John says? First, it looks like it means that we will be involved in testing the spirits. So what John basically says is the attestation of the spirit to the truth in the churches happens within, in the realm, in the sphere of spiritual warfare. That we have to affirm the work of the Spirit among us whilst we also resist the work of false spirits among us. Verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. The fact that there there is such a thing as The Spirit of God, verse 2. This is how we know the Spirit of God. So we can know the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We can cry out for the work of the Spirit. We need to cry out for the work of the Spirit. The Spirit does work among us to preserve, to protect the truth. Does not, though, take away from the fact, that does not take away from the fact that we still need to try the Spirit. That not every spirit that claims to be the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God. And so any church, a church that believes in the work of the Spirit, must first be ready to, must also be ready to test the Spirit, whether they are of God. And John says that this is because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what, what, what's John saying there? John's saying the reason why you have to be ready to test the spirits and engage in this act of spiritual warfare is because there's going to be competing voices. It's because the Holy Spirit will speak and the Holy Spirit does speak to the church. He does guide the church. He does lead the church. But there will also be other voices. These are the voices that John refers to almost, if you want, interchangeably as the voice of Antichrist or the voice of the false prophets or the voice of the world. And we have to be ready for that. We have to be ready to engage, if you want, in that kind of warfare. Now, it's a warfare that we engage in by engaging our spiritual discernment. We have to be ready to discern. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Test the spirit. Be ready to discern the spirit. Don't just believe. I guess in this, in this immediate, in, in, in John, perhaps John is speaking about people who came to these churches claiming to be prophets, claiming to have the spirit, claiming to be able to work miracles, claiming to be able to speak uh, prophetically, claiming to have the whole, all these kinds of things, claiming that. And John was saying just because they claim that they walk in the miraculous, maybe even just because they do the miraculous, doesn't mean that it's the Spirit of God that is behind them. You have to be able to discern what Spirit is speaking. You have to be able to discern is this of the Lord? And John tells us how we do that. How do we do that? He says, essentially, John says, does the Spirit confess the incarnation? Verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now let's be clear here. This is probably very contextually based. So what is really happening here is John is probably writing to a congregation who had begun to, uh, who had come under attack. And what was under attack was the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. There were people claiming that, and this is at some level is conjecture, but it's quite clear that John is defending in particular one aspect of our Christology, one aspect of our teachings on Jesus Christ. But John is not saying, surely, that the only thing that these, these false spirits, the only way to test these false spirits is if they say there's no incarnation. But if they say, for example, oh, there is an incarnation, but there's no cross, that's okay. John, John's not saying that. He's not saying, if they say Jesus Christ did come in the flesh, he did die, but he, he didn't rise again like some secular historians would want to say. John's not saying that's okay. So it must be that this is contextually based. This is a congregation that is dealing with attacks, attacks on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They are dealing with denials of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They are dealing with people who have come and said, actually, Jesus Christ, um, he, he, didn't, he didn't come in human form. Whatever they were trying to put in its place, um, again, we make conjecture. Some think, some, some think it, it was a well-known Gnostic heresy called Docetism that claimed that Jesus Christ only appeared to be in human form. But actually, he wasn't. Um, 
he wasn't uh, a real man. He wasn't actually a man. He was, just, he was an apparition. He looked like a man, but he wasn't actually a man. And so he didn't die on the cross. Um, Islam has forms of docetism in it when it denies that Jesus Christ, for example, died on the cross. Or when Islam d denies that Jesus Christ is actually God. He was just a man, just another prophet. And so Muslims will say, we have the greatest respect for Jesus Christ. We actually hold Jesus Christ in high esteem. And they say, because we think he's the last prophet before Muhammad. Well, that's an insult to our Jesus. It's not respect whatsoever. But it's actually a, dist it's a distorting of what the Bible says about Jesus. Right? It's a distorting of what the Bible says about him. And I think what John is saying is every spirit then, at least the application is this. So, for, so, so to this congregation, yes, John is dealing with the... Uh, with the incarnation, with the denial of the incarnation. But the application to congregations far and wide is the way you test the presence of the Holy Spirit is if this, whatever's happening in the congregation of God's people is confessing the truth about Jesus Christ. Or, to put it another way, the way you know that the Holy Spirit is not in a place is when Jesus Christ is not being confessed. When the truth of Jesus Christ is being distorted. That's how you know where the Holy Spirit is. Where the Holy Spirit is, Jesus Christ is confessed. And so when people claim that there is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. When folks claim that they're gathering unto God. When folks claim that this is a Christian thing. We have to test it. We have to test it. Some, some Christians just want us to engage in some kind of lazy, ecumenical kumbaya. We all love each other. As long as you call yourself Christian, there's no problem. That's, that's, that's actually contrary to what the Bible teaches. Yes, the Lord wants us to have unity, but not at the expense of truth. Yes, God wants us to have genuine fellowship with brothers in Christ, but we can't be brothers in Christ if we don't have the same spirit. We have to test the spirit. And so anyone can call themselves a church of Christ, the house of God, international church, or whatever. We need to begin to test. We have to test that. We have to test the spirit. In a sense, when you go into a church, you have to test the spirit. Right? You, you go into a church, regardless of what it's called, maybe. You say, I need to test. Is the, test. What's the spirit here? You need to discern that. And John tells us that the way we do that is by asking, what do these folks confess about Jesus Christ? In another passage, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, No man can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, it seems strange. Jesus is Lord. Anyone can say that. John, Paul is saying a bit more than that. He's saying, he's talking about confession. He's talking about confessing Christ and all that he is. What I'm saying is, the implication of these kind of verses is that we can subsume every other aspect of Christ's work. We can include in this the incarnation of Jesus Christ we can include in this the cross of Jesus Christ what do they say about the cross 
Do they believe that Jesus Christ actually died? And then, even when that is said, what was the meaning of his death? Why did he die? Was he a substitutionary atonement? Was he dying in our place? Was he taking the wrath of God upon himself? Was he the spotless Lamb of God? Whilst he was bearing the weight of the, the, the world's sins? Did he die for the entire world so that there's no such thing as judgment? Or did he die for those who God gave to him? Did he rise again or is he still in the grave? When he rose again, did he rise in a human body? Or uh, was he just made to appear human? Did he ascend into heaven? Is he seated in the heavens right now, reigning over the entire world? Is he coming back again? All these things are brought into this expression of does a spirit confess that Jesus Christ, confess Jesus Christ? So in this particular context, John relegates it to, uh, John relegates it to, he, he's dealing with the incarnation. He's dealing with those who, are, who oppose the incarnation. He's dealing with those who deny the incarnation. But John says, but John, but John is basically saying, actually, Denying the incarnation, denying anything about Jesus Christ means you don't have Jesus Christ. That's interesting. How do we weigh up what is a signal or what signifies that Jesus Christ, or, or, or sorry, what, what, what signifies that uh, um, someone is either confessing or not confessing Jesus Christ, broadly speaking? How, how do we weigh up the kind, of the kind of doctrine that someone says about Jesus Christ or, or the kind of thing that someone says about Jesus Christ, that means we ought, we ought to say, uh, this is not Christianity. So, 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 for example, people debate whether our Lord Jesus Christ actually ever drank alcohol. Did he, did he ever drink? Um, was he too holy for that? Would he be, a, would it, would he be what, what, what was the Nazarene and the Nazarite vow foreshadowing the... Um, the, the, the true holy one, the true set apart one, Jesus Christ, and so we shouldn't think of him having ever drunk wine or drunk alcohol, or is actually, is alcohol uh, and wine a good gift of God that Jesus Christ would have been able to drink uh, faithfully and drink responsibly as it were and drink to the glory of God does do his attendance at Jewish weddings, does his attendance at Jewish weddings, or the accusations of him being a drunkard, do those things indicate that he actually did drink alcohol, wine? You see, the point is, you can fall on either side of that. And we don't have to assume that you don't have the Holy Spirit because you deny one or affirm the other. So there are some things that we might say about Jesus Christ that actually we can agree to disagree over. There's some things that we might say about Jesus Christ that actually um, may not in, in, imply that one has a that, that one is outside of the pale of truth. I think what it is about the incarnation here, and John is going to develop this later on in his epistle, is that denial of the incarnation strikes at the heart 
of salvation. If someone denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, there is no salvation. You can't be saved by a Jesus Christ who doesn't take on human form. And maybe implicitly in the phrase, come in the flesh, is the fact that this Jesus is also God. He came in, came into the world. He took on flesh because he once lived outside of it without flesh, invisible, incorporeal, eternal God. And if you deny both those things, there is no salvation. Now, if you deny that Jesus Christ, uh, if you deny that Jesus Christ drank alcohol, then it doesn't, it doesn't affect our salvation. You can still be saved by a Christ that, you can be saved by a Christ who never drank alcohol. And you can be saved by a Christ who did drink alcohol if you read your Bible properly, right? And so those things don't strike at the heart of the atonement. And it's those things that if one begins to disbelieve, we say you can't be saved. Those are the things that we can say, well, the Holy Spirit is not here if you're speaking like this. So to take a more, maybe a more complicated example, someone who believes in what is often called Arminianism. And so they believe that human beings are not radically, totally depraved. You know, we, we, we are, we're, we, we're sinners uh, and we're, we're all going to hell, but we do, have, we do kind of have the power to choose what's right. God gives us the ability uh, to choose what is right. You know, we're not so... Uh, sorry, well, well we, have the, we, have, we have the option, we have the power somewhere in us. We, we can find the power to either choose to trust in Jesus Christ for his grace. We're not so totally depraved that actually, apart from God's grace overwhelming us, we won't even, we could never choose what is right. Um, they, they don't believe that God has chosen some before the foundation of the world. Uh, they believe that everybody... Um, can be saved depending on if they choose to follow Jesus. Um, everybody is chosen if they choose to be part of the chosen, basically. Um, they don't believe in, and we, we'll park here in a particular redemption. They don't believe that Jesus Christ only died for his own people. They, think, they believe that Jesus Christ died for every single person in the world the only thing that stops people from being saved is that they don't, they don't come and receive this, this death. Christ died for people who are going to hell. They believe that. They think that. And the reason why those people are going to hell is although Christ has already died for them and paid for their sins and washed, he's actually paid for them. He's, he's settled their account before God. They just never found out or they just never decided to, you know. It's all strange. It's all, yeah. It's all mad. But they, 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 that's what they think. That's what they believe. We still ask the question, if being an Armenian and thinking like that strikes at the heart of the atonement, right? If someone says that Jesus Christ died for every person in the world, but um, it's just up to you if you are going to trust him, does it strike at the heart of the atonement? Does it mean, does it somehow give us a Jesus who cannot save sinners? And I think historically, and rightly so, Reformed theology has said, folks who are on the opposite side, Calvinistic, have said, actually, no. 
it's a, it, we think it's a wrong view to say that Christ just died for everyone and still some people are going to hell. But it doesn't mean that these folks don't believe that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away sin. It doesn't mean that these folks don't believe that Jesus Christ took my place. Or that Jesus Christ had to be God-man. Or that Jesus Christ... Uh, had to bear the wrath of God on the cross. They believe it. Then, and, we still, and they believe that Christ rose again for us and he's coming back for us. So does it strike at the heart of the atonement? Or does it mean that this is a Jesus, does it give me a Jesus that cannot save, that is incapable of saving? And the, a Jesus Christ who does not come in the flesh is incapable of saving us. And so where that kind of doctrine is being espoused, John says, you have, the spirit is not there. The spirit is not present. You see, John makes, at some level, and I have to be careful here, because sometimes we, we, we add the wrong adjective to this. Now, John makes the test of the spirit's presence a doctrinal thing. That's not to say that he makes it a purely doctrinal thing. So sometimes we, we, we think that then the test of the spirit's presence is purely doctrinal. That's not true. The, the, the witness of First John is the, the, the presence of the Spirit is multifaceted. The, the, the test of the Spirit is multifaceted. So you can know the Holy Spirit is present. One of the tests you have to do is the doctrinal one we look at tonight. But you also have to do the test of love. So for example, if someone believes that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, but they, 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 they oppress their neighbors, if someone believes that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, but they, they steal from their, 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 their neighbor. They kidnap their neighbors. They rape their neighbors. They're not Christians. It's not Christ. They can say all they want they believe in, the, in Jesus Christ. That's, you're not Christian if you do that. If someone says, I believe Christ came in the flesh, but they, 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 they're living in sin, they, 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 whatever the sin is, they, they're living in it, they, 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 they're walking in sin, they're not obeying God's commandments, not repenting. You're not a Christian. So I can test the spirit that way. We can test the spirit by saying, okay, this person is saying this, but they're living a total different way. The Holy Spirit is not in this. So the test of the Holy Spirit is not purely doctrinal, but it is doctrinal. There's a doctrinal element. And this is a crucial word for, it's a crucial word for us, but for so much of Christianity today, where the presence of the spirit is sought merely in almost mystical demonstrations. We, we seek the presence of the Holy Spirit purely in how we feel, not caring much for the doctrinal element. And yet, John says it's a matter of what we confess, the truths we hold there, the truths we uphold. What is this person saying about Jesus Christ? Right? It's the weird thing of a worship service where two hours are spent singing all kinds of songs and 20 minutes is spent on motivational talk. Little or no concern for the confession, these great confessions. How do we test if the spirit is at work there? You can't, it can't just be a healing crusade where you all come up and we, the, the, the minister lays hands on you and you fall under the anointing and you fall under the anointing, and you fall under the anointing, and, you know, and you, it's just healing. 
even though it's only people with headache that's healed. You know, not, never. But anyway, it's just healing. It can't just be that. But there's no, you can't test the spirit that way. You test the spirit, the doctrinal element. And I guess that, that would be a, a, a rebuke to my Pentecostal brothers and sisters that maybe there's a downplaying of the doctrinal element. It's, it's why I'm, it's, it's my ambivalence about gospel music is we can't know the presence of the spirit because the music is great. Music is wonderful. But at the height of it in our singing on the church must be the confession. Right? Must be the confession. And this is where the hymns are great because the hymns are full of truth and the confession of weighty truth and we can't ever downplay the importance for doctrinal standing what do we confess by the way jesus christ coming in the flesh is not simple it's deep it is deep stuff to think through the incarnation and yet john says we have to connect confess this stuff if, the, if we know the spirit is going to be is at work among us, there's this doctrinal element to it. There is that. And so how, that's how you test the spirit. The key way by which you test the spirit is in the, in the worship service of the church is what is being confessed about Jesus Christ. The Son, the Spirit. Test the spirit. I'm going to have to, I'll, I'll stop there. The other two headings were to, to resist the spirit and, to, and the seal of the Spirit. And I'll look at those two things next Lord's Day evening. But we have, we have to test the Spirit. And let me close by saying this then, making just this one application. That for you to be able to discern the Spirit, for you to be able to test the Spirit, you have to know the confession. Right? That's what John says. This is how we know the Spirit of God. Because every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is, you have to know the confession. For you to be able to test if the spirit that is speaking is the spirit of God and not the spirit of Antichrist, you have to know what you believe. You have to know apostolic doctrine. You have to know what the Bible teaches, especially about Jesus and his work. You cannot settle for Christianity that is purely emotional and not challenging to the intellect. What do I believe about Jesus? And I'm not convinced that in 1 John chapter 4, John is talking to theologians professionals, pastors, and teachers. Beloved, in verse 1, you are of God, little children, in verse 4. He's talking to Christians, all of us, and he's saying that it is our duty to be able to discern to test the spirit, to know that the spirit of God is speaking in the doctrinal sense. We have to, there's no getting away from it. We have to know Christian doctrine. Now someone says, well, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not someone that, I don't like to read a lot, or uh, I'm not a very, I'm not a book, book type person. Listen, this is far from being an issue of intellectual capacity. Is, is God, are we wiser than the Lord? 
would God really give us measurements and standards by which to preserve our faith that we were incapable of achieving? Is God really saying that it's the, it's the scholars who can be saved? In fact, the New Testament tells us it's usually the other way around. It's the scholars who are not saved. Right? That's not what... That's not, that can't be the point. It can't be a matter of how much, how much you're able to read or how brilliant you are. It's a thing of actually the witness of the Spirit. And we'll see this next, next Lord's Day. John says, what we believe is about the Spirit's witness. The Spirit bears witness with us. The Spirit draws, draws us to the truth. If we walk in the Spirit, if we're led by the Spirit, we will fight to believe what God has said about Jesus Christ. Whatever way we, we, whatever way we find opportunity to do that, for a, for a child who comes to trust in Jesus Christ, it will be as simple as Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's got the whole world in his hands those are actually profound words of theology. And for, for, a theolo- for a brilliant theologian who's a Christian man, yes, he will go as far as reading um, the church fathers and, and reading works that we might not be interested in. And we will all have, if you want, intellectual capacity. But, but if the Spirit is bearing witness with us, if we're God's children, we will, we will fight to know the Jesus we confess. We will fight to know it. And my, 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 my brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a sin, um, and it is it's dangerous for us to, because we've become lazy, and we lack self-discipline, and ultimately all these are moral issues, because... The reason why you're lazy and you lack self-discipline is because you're no longer in love. It's a love thing. It's a heart thing. Right? You know, passion for something can drive you to spend, expend all this energy and effort. And the reason why we start to lack the energy and effort is symptomatic of a love that is dull. It's symptomatic of a drifting. It's symptomatic of a being distracted. And if we come to that point so that we no longer care for the doctrines about Jesus Christ and you no longer remember when last, you, you, no, you don't know fundamental doctrines and you don't think through theology and you don't, want to, you, you don't, sit, you don't want to sit under sermons and listen and pay attention and, and we allow ourselves to fall away from the truth like that. We, it's a sin and it's so dangerous. It's dangerous. The rest of First John, uh, of these verses, are going to tell us that falling away from the truth, not holding on to the, de- to the confession of Jesus Christ, is devastating to faith. The, 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 the aim of Satan is to overcome us. It's to overcome us. That's, that's Satan's aim, to destroy our faith. And so we must never neglect the doctrinal aspect of our faith. This is what I believe, not just what I feel, it's what I believe, is what I know about Jesus. 
and in the, in, the, in the many ways that God will present to us to consolidate that, to improve on that, to mature in that, so that we move from milk to meat, we must press, persevere. We must press on in that. We must take advantage of that. Some of you, God is calling you to less music and more sermons and more podcasts and more books, less TV and more meditation and more thinking, less trivial conversations and more conversation about Jesus the Christ. We hear him leading us and say we have to do this because you, you, you don't even understand so-and-so anymore. It's not a joke. It's a battle for our souls, right? To know what we believe. Because it's when we confess that Jesus is the Christ that we know that we have the Holy Spirit. Amen.